read God's word. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than men's strength. Father, this is your word. May it pierce our hearts redirect and align our minds to your will and your power. We pray, Lord, that it will change lives today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Charleston, South Carolina is known as the holy city. In fact, it is known for that because at the last count, there are over 400 church steeples in Charleston. That's amazing. And yet we look at Charleston, South Carolina, and it is an amazing city. Aren't you glad to be a member of this beautiful city of Charleston? But Paul here is writing to a church in Corinth, which is another city, and it was very similar to Charleston. In fact, Charleston is very similar to Corinth. In fact, it's a port city. Corinth was a very strong port city. A lot of trade and wealth passed through that city. It was also a popular city. It was also a prosperous city, but it was a pagan city. Charleston is known as the holy city, but it is in many ways far from holy. And so Paul, in his missionary journeys, goes and plants this church in Corinth. And after he had visited there for 18 months, he then sends this first letter to them. It's a long letter, 16 chapters in total. And Paul is addressing some very specific issues within the church, including division, immorality, lawsuits. They had people in the, in the church actually suing one another, disorderly worship, drunkenness during the Lord's Supper, abuse of spiritual gifts even during the worship services. So if you think we got it bad, think about Corinth here. This is a church that is really struggling. And yet Paul, in his opening remarks in verse 4, if you look at verse 4 there of 1 Corinthians, he says, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. 
skip down to verse 10, and he digs right into the very first issue that he wanted to address in its division within the church. And look at what Paul says there in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. You see, Paul had heard from some in Chloe's household that there were groups kind of gathering around different leaders within the church. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas, which is Peter. And I follow Christ. And then Paul, in his ever-perfect way of addressing issues, asked questions. And in verse 15, he says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Now, the obvious answer to all of these questions is no. No, only one has done that, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so Paul goes on to a little, and this is classic Paul, he goes into kind of thinking back, reflecting on who he has baptized. And then we come to verse 17, which is kind of setting us up for our passage this morning. And he says this, for Christ did not send me to baptize. That's not the purpose for which he called me into the ministry. But to preach the gospel. Not with words of human wisdom. And get this, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It is that context into when Paul then issues this amazing declaration. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so today I want us to look at three specific questions. The first is, what is the message of the cross? Number two, why... Is the cross foolishness to those who are perishing? And then thirdly, why is the cross power to those who are being saved? You know, what does the cross symbolize? We'll look at that first question. What is the message of the cross? You see, we see on tops of every single church a cross. We see it embossed on our Bibles. We see it worn around people's necks. We see it tattooed on people's bodies. Sir Edmund Hillary, who had scaled the largest mountain peak on earth, Mount Everest, when he finally made it to the top, he buried a wooden cross in the snow. And on 9-11-2001, all of us know where we were that day, but out of the rubble, of the twin towers that had collapsed on that day, we see a steel-girded cross still standing in our midst. It was a message of hope for our great country back in that day. They symbolize the enduring message of the cross. So the message of the cross is this. It is the catalyst for the gospel. It points us to the penalty of sin. It shows us the ugliness of sin. 
and it shows us the sacrifice, the atoning work of the only one who was sinless and could pay the price that God declared for us. That is what the message of the cross is. It symbolizes one of the most cruel instruments of torture. Many scholars believe that it was invented by the Phoenicians and picked up by the Romans as a way to torture the most vilest of criminals. It is the most shameful and humiliating death. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, we read these words, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. In fact, it's excruciating. Do you realize that the modern day term excruciating comes from the word crucifixion? When we say something is excruciatingly painful, that is what we are saying. But I think if we were to really get our eyes focused on what the cross really was like for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to hang there, we should go back to Psalm 22. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 22. I'm just going to read a few verses out of this psalm written by David, get this, 1,000 years before the cross was even invented. 1,000 years before the cross was even invented. Verse 1 of that psalm says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For anybody who's familiar with the gospel messages, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every one of them record the crucifixion. And Jesus, one of the first words he says on the cross is these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe that Jesus is allowing the people that are gathered around his cross to know they need to think back to Psalm 22 to understand what he was going through and how through, the, through his prophet or his son David, how he was going to point to the Messiah's death. Skip down with me to verse 6. It says this, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And then skip down to verse 14. These are some sobering words about what it must have felt like to hang on that cross. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. 
I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. That last couple of words actually were a prophecy of what would happen for Jesus' garments were uh, cast lots for. And so we see here that the cross's message is the catalyst for the good news. Because before you and I can embrace the power of the cross, we must understand, acknowledge, and feel the weight of the pain of the cross. There is no power without the pain, the excruciating pain. But now second, we want to answer the question, why is the cross foolishness to those who are perishing? Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The first answer is this. There are seven reasons. Number one, the world trusts in its own wisdom. Look at what it says there in verse, chapter, uh, verse 19. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the, intelligent of, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Paul is quoting Isaiah, Isaiah 29. It's a prophecy against Israel and against uh, the Jewish people. And he says in verse 13 of that prophecy, These people come to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Jesus then quotes that particular prophecy in the, in the Gospels to his people, to the Pharisees, and this is what he says, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. The very next verse is what's recorded here in 1 Corinthians. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. So in verse 20, after quoting this prophecy from Isaiah, Paul says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? It's almost as if Paul is challenging the church Bring me your best, your brightest, your smartest, your most intelligent. You know, if you and I were to look back in the Old Testament to one of the most righteous, one of the most wealthiest, one of the most intelligent men, we would go to Job. God himself declared him righteous. And Job had been attacked by Satan according to God's allowance. And Job, after consulting with some friends, finally broke down after many, many, many chapters of holding his faith in God. At the very end, he starts to question God for his calamity. And in chapter 38 of Job, you can go home and read it today, God answers Job. And this is what he says. Who is this that darkens my counsel? with words, without knowledge. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. You see, what God was doing was putting Job in his place and saying, you 
are a man. I am God. Don't question my ways. Of course, we know the end of the story that God does bless Job afterward. But we see here that man is small. And yet we live in a culture, just like in the culture of Corinth in Paul's day, where mankind wants to put its faith in our human wisdom. NASA, this week, just released pictures from its new James Webb telescope. Look at what it says here. Look at that. This is a picture from the newest, most resolution-focused telescope known to man. We now see the vast universe. There are literally trillions of galaxies within it. We wouldn't even be able to pick out Earth in this picture. The planet Earth, as big as it is when you travel on an airplane, is a small, tiny dot in the vast universe. This is what God had created. And so why would we place our faith in human wisdom when God is so great and so powerful? Is there any other reason for us to be humble before an infinitely powerful creator God? Think about what we don't know. Think about what science is still trying to discover. We don't know where consciousness comes from. We have no way to explain it. We cannot even explain fully how the human brain operates. We haven't figured out how to stop a hurricane. Wouldn't that be nice, being in Charleston? We haven't figured out how it is possible that every single snowflake that falls upon the earth is unique. No, snow, no two snowflakes are the same. We haven't figured out aging. Oh, we've tried, but we can't figure it out. At some point, there is a point of death for all. Cancer has ravaged every single family to some degree. And didn't we just come out of COVID when we were scrambling to figure that out? We think we got it under the control, and now there's other streams or streams, strings that are happening. We see it all the time. And get this, a friend of mine just this week said, I've got a cold. Do you realize we, we haven't figured out how to, to end the common cold? If you take medicine, you'll get better in seven days. If you don't take medicine, you'll get better in seven days. But the world is not just trusting of its own wisdom, but we also want proof. Look at what it says down there. Jews, verse 22, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Regarding the Jews, they demanded a sign from Jesus Christ. Do you know what his answer was? I'll give you his answer. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, I think it's fascinating. I mean, as a Sunday school teacher, I always wonder why it is that Jesus quotes certain passages of the Old Testament, refers to certain specific people in the Old Testament. 
Because if you were a skeptic this morning, or if you have a friend who is a skeptic of the Scriptures, and they went to the Old Testament, and they were going to try to find that one story that sounds like a fairy tale, they would go to Jonah. And yet, Jesus Christ, in his earthly ministry, decides to specifically call out the story that is known as Jonah and the big fish. And he refers to it as an actual, literal event. I don't know about you, but that gets me excited. That if I can trust Christ, and Christ can verify and validate Old Testament messages, narratives like Jonah, then I can trust the whole word of God. Furthermore, the Greeks, they demanded a, a philosophy, a system. Think about it, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, and Epicurus, and others. When Paul went to Athens, he was encountered by these wise men who wanted to discuss strange new ideas. And Paul walked around, and what did he do? He found all of these statues to different gods. And then Paul found a statue that was given to the unknown God, because the Greeks were very, very much, they didn't want to leave any God out. And so they put one up that says to the unknown God. It was then that Paul said, let me tell you about that God. Third, the cross is scandalous. Look at what it says there. A stumbling block, the end of the chapter, I mean, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But those God called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross is scandalous. In fact, where he says a stumbling block, the word stumbling literally means scandalous. Scandalon is the Greek word. And, G and Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. That a prophet or someone who claims to be a Messiah is shameful to anyone who is like a wise person or a Jew or even a Muslim. Stumbling block literally means scandalous. And so as they stood there, you would imagine that the Jew would have wanted Jesus to come right down off that cross as people were hurling insults in him, at him. And you would have thought that the Greeks that were gathered there would have wanted Jesus to come off that cross and give some new philosophical system that they had never heard before. But you and I would know what Jesus said. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The cross is scandalous to so many, and it's what keeps them from coming to Christ. Fourth, people believe they are good enough to go to heaven. Have you ever heard that? In fact, a Pew Research recently said that 75% of all people polled believe they will go to heaven when they die. They will say, I am a good person. Well, I'm not like that person, and they start to compare themselves with others who have much more heinous crimes or sins in their lives. This is a lie of the devil. The world needs to know that no one is righteous, no, not one. 
for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible has to say. That's what God has to say. Please, as you talk to friends, inform them that God's standard is not human's standard. Help them to understand that they need a Savior. Number five, atheism is on the increase in our nation. They don't believe in God and they don't believe in the Bible. But the Bible says something about them. What does the Bible say? In Psalm 14, it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Number six, affluency. Affluency. You know, we live in a very affluent country. People are too busy filling up their lives with what makes them happy. And affluency can keep you from going to the Word of God and letting the Word of God speak to us. In fact, this has become something that is on a shelf somewhere, but it is not ever used. This is what our nation needs, is the Word of Jesus Christ. Finally, there's the seventh reason that it's foolishness to those who are perishing, and that is antagonism. People are turned off by the church. They call us hypocrites, and they're right many of the time. They believe the church is intolerant, unloving, and bigoted. We live in a relativistic culture where everything's relative. It's my truth. It places everybody on the pedestal of being their own God. So what is our message and what is our response to a world that is antagonistic to the church? Because that antagonism has grown over the last year or two. What is our message? Well, next Sunday we're going to deal with the answer to that question. Because the Word of God always has an answer. And because of that, we will talk about that next week when we talk about the second part, the wisdom of the cross. But thirdly, let me quickly go to this because this is the most important part. And that is, why is the cross the power of God, for, the power for those God is saving? You notice it says, us being saved. It is a process. There was a moment in which you were converted. There was a moment in which you trusted Christ. But all of your life is a process of what we call sanctification. Becoming more and more like Christ. And why is the cross power for those who are being saved? First of all, all of human history is centered on the cross of Jesus Christ. Every single human being born before the cross looked forward to it. And every single human being born after the cross looked back to it. It is the centerpiece of all human history. That is why Paul declared in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes in God, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. He also said in this same letter in chapter 9, verse 16, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. To those whom he has called, he has called them. The word called literally means kletos, kletos. It means an invitation. It is the gospel call. As Jeff prayed this morning, it is about reaching out to the West Ashley community and inviting them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
In verse 25, Paul says, The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's power. It is no small thing, it is no small thing that Jesus Christ was positioned in the middle cross between two criminals. While both of them hurled insults at him initially, one of them finally came to his senses and started to repent. And he rebuked the other criminal and said, this man is innocent. Why are you hurling insults at him? Don't you fear God? This man has done nothing wrong. And then that thief on the cross said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus' response, did he ask him, how long have you been a church member? Did he ask him, how many days a week have you done a good thing for somebody else? Did he ask him, let's talk about the the actual doctrine of justification. What do you know about that? No, Jesus looked at him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. My, my question to all of us this morning is, which criminal are you? Are you the one who is hurling insults and scoffing at the cross of Christ? Or are you the one who says, Jesus, remember me? You know, I can imagine when that man went to heaven and they asked him, why are you here? What have you done? I can just imagine him with kind of a confused look on his face and say, I don't know. But the man in the middle said, I can come. Amen and hallelujah. What a Savior. Four reasons why it is power. It portrays the foolish measure of God's love for mankind. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Secondly, it deals with sin once and for all. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. He entered the most holy place once for all by his blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Number three, it offers forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. In him, we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins. And finally, it is the only way for us to be saved. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Peter declared, salvation is found in no one else, 
For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we might be saved. What is our conclusion then? If the message of the cross is the catalyst for the gospel, if it is the one thing that unifies us, as Paul alluded to in chapter 1, if it's the one thing that brings us together, if in fact the cross itself shows us the depth and the ugliness of sin, the love of God, the way of salvation, and the newness of life, then we should all come to the cross. Every one of us should come. And in fact, if we come to the cross, let me tell you, it's a level ground. There is no one that's more educated that is better than anyone else. There is no one who has a better background. There is no one who has a greater skill because the cross is the place where we are all one in God. And that is what Jesus has done for us. So we have to ask ourselves the question, are you ready to trust him? Are you ready to receive him? Are you ready to follow him, to take up your cross and follow him daily? Either the all-powerful, eternal creator and redeemer stepped out of heaven 2,000 years ago and came and lived the sinless life, died on the cross and was raised on the third day, or he didn't. He either did or he didn't. Jesus Christ doesn't allow us to stand in the middle, to sit on the fence, to say, oh, well, maybe later. No, Jesus said, come now, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will what? Give you rest. Rest in the knowledge and the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ. What about you? What about your neighbor? What about your family member? What about your coworker? We all claim with Paul, today is the day of salvation. Let us pray. Father, this message is a message of hope. It is a message of good news. But too often times, Father, we preach Christ, but we don't preach Christ crucified. So Father, this morning, let us remember what he did. That he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He laid down his life. No one took it from him. He laid it down in accordance with your great pleasure and will. Father, there are people in this room right now who need Jesus Christ. They need to come to Christ for the first time perhaps ever. There are people listening to this live stream who need to take that step of faith to trust Jesus. Lord, I pray that you will move in their hearts right now, that the very Holy Spirit that is one with you will convict them and prompt them to make that decision. Today is the day of salvation. There are others in this room right now, Father, who need to recommit their life to Jesus Christ. 
They need to lay themselves out, surrendered to you and to your purpose and your plan for their lives. Lord, I pray that they will respond today and recommit themselves to following you, to taking up their cross daily and following the one who is the way. Father, there are others in this room who just want to join this church family, who want to worship here, who want to work here, and who want to witness on behalf of Christ from here. Lord, I pray that if any person in this room or any family or couple wants to come forward to join this fellowship and do the work of the kingdom together, I pray that you will move in their hearts this morning as we sing this final hymn. And Lord, we give it all to you in Jesus' name. Please stand with me. Kathy's going to lead us in a song. And you've heard the, the invitation. If you've never trusted Christ, you come. You don't worry about it. Jesus died publicly for you. You publicly come. If you want to recommit your life, you can do that right there in your chair or pew, or you can come up to the front, or you can talk to me. If you want to join our fellowship, what a beautiful crowd we have today. This is an opportunity for you to join a fellowship that loves the Lord Jesus and loves our community with his love. You come and sing. Please. When I was nine years old, this was the invitation hymn that I accepted Christ in my heart. Will you go where he leads you?
and Rachel, please come forward. Church family, I'm so excited to introduce you to Gray and Rachel Whiteley. They want to join Ashley River Baptist Church as a, a transfer of membership from other Baptist churches. And we're just grateful. They've been visiting for five and a half or six months, coming to my Sunday school. And uh, it's just wonderful to have them here for membership today. If you affirm them in their decision to join our church, will you say amen? Amen. 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 And after the service is done, yeah, you can clap, you can clap. <clears throat> they don't clap for the sermon, but that, that's, you know. Okay, so let me let us out, okay? I'm going to say a benediction, but if you have an opportunity to come by and just introduce yourself to this young couple, please do so. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Have a blessed day. Stand right up here. I'll have you.